chain of events, cause and effect. We analyse what went right and what went wrong, as we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for, and even prevented. I'm John Chigi, and this is Causality. Causality is supported by you, our listeners. If you'd like to support the show, you can by becoming a premium supporter. Premium support is available via Patreon and through the Engineered Network's Apple Podcasts channel subscription. Premium supporters have access to early release, high-quality ad-free episodes as well as bonus material from all of our shows not available anywhere else. We're edging closer to our monthly goal to go advertising-free across the network, but we can only do that with your help. Causality is also a podcasting 2.0 enhanced show, and with the right podcast player, you can also stream Satoshis as you listen at whatever rate you prefer, giving you complete control. The choice is yours. Just visit engineered.network causality to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Thank you. Ocean Ranger. In early 1982, the semi-submersible, self-propelled, offshore oil rig drilling platform the Ocean Ranger was drilling at well J-34 in the Hibernia oil field, approximately 267 kilometres or 166 miles east of St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada. The oil field had only been discovered in 1979, in part driven by the oil shortage of 1973 and a broader market drive for oil reserve exploration in deeper offshore waters. Mobile Oil, the leaseholder, was drilling multiple wells in that field to map the extent of the reserves, of which well J-34 was one of those exploratory wells, the third in that field that the Ocean Ranger had thus far drilled. At the time, two other similar platforms, although smaller, were also drilling in the area. The Sedco 706, that was 13.7 kilometres or 8.5 miles north-northeast, and the Zapata Ugland, 30.9 kilometres or 19.2 miles north of the Ocean Ranger. The Ocean Ranger was designed and built by Adeco International, the offshore drilling and exploration company of New Orleans, Louisiana, and the Norwegian firm of Fernley and Eager AS. It was built at the Hiroshima yard of the Mitsubishi Heavy Industries in 1976. Technically referred to as a MODU, or Mobile Offshore Drilling Unit, and the design uses large, ballasted pontoons that sit beneath the water, and by using interconnected pumps and valve arrangements, these pontoons can be filled with water or air to adjust the rig's position in the water. This allows the working platform to be high enough above the sea surface level, and hence out of the reach of most waves, and therefore does not pitch and roll as badly as a ship would that was floating on the surface of the water. At the time, it was the largest rig of its kind to be launched at 121 metres long, 80 metres wide, and 103 metres tall. That's about 400 feet long by 260 feet wide by 340 feet high. It was designed to operate up to 460 metres or 1,500 feet deep and could drill to a maximum depth of 7,600 metres or 25,000 feet at that water depth. It was also designed to withstand 190 km an hour or 100 knot winds and 34 metre or 110 foot waves. The Ocean Ranger had two 120 metre or 400 foot long pontoons that had a design operating height or depth under the waterline if you prefer, nominally referred to as its draft, of 24 metres or 79 feet and used 12 undersea anchor weights each weighing 20 tonnes for position stabilisation when drilling. 
each anchor weight was connected to the rig by a long, heavy chain, as well as a section of steel wire on each. Each pontoon was broken up into 16 individual sub-tanks for a total of 32 tanks, and of those, 24 were used for ballast, 4 for fuel oil, and 4 for drill water. The chains for connecting the undersea anchors were stored in chain lockers, which were in the upper section of the four corner columns between the pontoons and the decks. Each corner column contained three chain lockers within it, for 12 in total on the rig, and each lay between watertight flats at the 10.5 metre and 21 metre, that's 35 and 70 feet, elevations of the pylons. After completing several wells in the Bering Sea off Alaska and Lower Cook Inlet, it gradually moved around Cape Horn at the southern tip of South America until it worked the Baltimore Canyon off New Jersey in August of 1977. Following a brief side trip to Ireland, it returned to the east coast of North America, starting on its first well off Newfoundland on the 6th of November 1980. With that background, let's talk about the incident itself. At 2pm Newfoundland Standard Time, on Sunday the 14th of February 1982, the Ocean Ranger was continuing to drill normally at 5.5 metres per hour, that's 18 feet per hour, in building seas as a storm was approaching. At 6.47pm, Mobile's Merv Graham received a call from Jack Jacobson, the senior drilling foreman on board the Ocean Ranger, informing Mr Graham that the storm was building quickly and the rig had disconnected drilling and hung off successfully though to do so, they had to shear their drill pipe. The other two rigs had also done the same by this time. By 7pm, winds were reported at 60 to 65 miles per hour, that's 52 to 56 knots, with heaves of 7 metres or 22 feet. Sometime between 7.45pm and 8pm, as heard over the VHF radio channels by nearby rigs and support ships, water was reported in the ballast control room, at 8.44pm, Mr Jacobson once again called Mr Graham, reporting 50-foot seas and winds of 90 to 100 knots, and reported that a port light in the ballast control room had been broken by a rogue wave, but that it wasn't causing any issues and everything was functioning normally. Sometime between 9.30pm and 10pm, a VHF transmission was heard from the Ocean Ranger ballast control room, indicating that the electronics technician was there and everything was cleaned up and things were looking okay. At 11.30pm, Rick Flynn, Mobile's shore-based radio operator in St John's, received the weather report from the Ocean Ranger's weather observer, and there was no indication that the Ocean Ranger was experiencing any difficulties at that time. Sometime between 12.30am and 12.45am, now on Monday morning of the following day, electrical power was restored to the ballast control system panel most likely in an attempt to adjust the draft, that's the height of the rig above the waterline, or potentially as a troubleshooting measure. At 1am, Mr Jacobson called Mr Graham, reporting a listing to the bow of 8 to 10 feet, although objectively he may have meant to say degrees, not feet, and that they were attempting to isolate the problem. At 1.05am, the Ocean Ranger contacted the Seaforth Highlander support vessel and requested that it come to a close standby position, stating that, we are listing badly, and that all countermeasures to regain trim were ineffective. The Seaforth Highlander was approximately eight miles south of the Ocean Ranger at that time, and they were requested to move to a standby position. At 1.09am, a distress telex from the Ocean Ranger was received by a Marisat operator in Connecticut, and it reads as follows. 
are experiencing a severe list, unable to correct problem, notifying UPF problem please QSL. We are the Otoko Ocean Ranger KRTB LOC GPS coordinates and are experiencing a severe list of about 10-15 degrees and are in the middle of a severe storm at the time 12 degrees and progressing. Request assistance as soon as possible. We are an offshore drilling platform. We will stand by as long as possible. Winds at this time are approx from the west at approx 75 knots. Rig is of semi-submersible build and is listing severely 12 to 15 degrees to the port side. General info, we check that all available workboats in the immediate area are coming to our assistance. There are two other semi-submersibles in the area and will do all possible to assist. At 1.21am, the Sedco 706 platform directed its standby vessel, the Boltentor, to proceed to the Ocean Ranger. At 1.22am, the Zapata Uglands standby vessel, the Nordator, was also directed to proceed to the Ocean Ranger. At 1.30am, Ken Blackbore, the medic radio operator on the Ocean Ranger, called Mr Flynn at Mobile Shore Base Station stating that the crew was going to lifeboat stations. This was the final communication from the Ocean Ranger. At 2.15am, the Universal Helicopter crews contracted by Mobile had arrived at the airport but struggled to get the helicopters out of their hangars due to the high wind conditions and the requirement to fill the auxiliary tanks fully with reserve fuel. At 2.38am, the Seaforth Highlander support vessel had moved towards a flare it had spotted in the storm and pulled alongside a lifeboat from the Ocean Ranger. The lifeboat was heavily damaged, and in the poor light and storm conditions, men were seen bailing water out both the port and starboard side doors, and the people on board were a mix of those with and without life preservers and different levels of clothing, some warm and some not. It was impossible for the crewmen to communicate in the high wind conditions, and after several attempts of throwing a line, one with a life ring was successfully tethered to the lifeboat. At 2.38am, with several people now standing on the port gunwale of the lifeboat, a large wave hit the boat, the tether snapped, and the lifeboat capsized, throwing all of the lifeboat crew into the ocean. In following minutes, a life raft from the supply vessel was launched once the frozen lines were cut to allow it to be launched. However, their attempts to pull the crew from the water were futile, as many had already succumbed to the conditions and were unresponsive. Despite their best efforts, the supply vessel was unable to rescue any of the crew from the Ocean Ranger. At 2.45am, the Boltentor arrived on the scene and made visual contact with the Ocean Ranger platform, noting that only a few lights remained visible, and upon closer inspection with a searchlight, found no signs of life, no lifeboats on board, and no one visible in the water. Turning their efforts to search and assistance of the other support vessel, the Boltentor approached the Seaforth Highlander, observing multiple bodies and a capsized boat in the water. The prevailing weather conditions of 60-foot seas and 70-knot winds meant multiple repeated attempts to rescue crew in the water using lifebuoys and grapnels all failed. At 3.22am, the first rescue helicopter was in the air, heading for the scene. Despite the fact, in a less critical situation, the weather conditions at the time would never have allowed them to take off. At 3.38am, the Nordator reported to the Sedco 706 platform that the Ocean Ranger had disappeared from its radar. At 4.35am, a Universal helicopter finally arrived at the scene, taking over an hour to reach that location due to high headwinds and poor visibility. The Universal helicopters were designed for travel between the offshore rig and the mainland and were intended to land on a helipad, of which only those on the support vessels remained available to them. 
they were not outfitted with retrieval equipment and instead could only assist by directing search efforts on the surface. Later in the morning, additional search and recovery craft arrived on the scene. However, they were unable to save any of the crew of the Ocean Ranger. 84 people had died. Following the incident, a total of only 22 bodies were recovered from the ocean, with all of them succumbing to drowning brought on by hypothermia. A series of sonar and underwater surveys conducted by Mobile Oil Canada in February and March of 1982 located the wreck in an inverted position, approximately 150 metres or 500 feet to the southeast of the Hibernia J-34 well at a seabed depth of 78 metres or 255 feet. The superstructure was crushed into the seabed and the rig was resting on its upper deck. The investigation was hampered by several factors. Firstly, there were no survivors from the crew of the Ocean Ranger. Secondly, most of the radio transmissions were not recorded and they were transient over VHF channels, many of the people speaking could not be easily identified, and witnesses that overheard conversations had wildly different recollections about the times they heard them and what precisely was said. Thirdly, most of the observations of the Ocean Ranger visually were in extremely poor weather conditions during the early morning hours and also varied significantly from witness to witness. Finally, the rig predated SCADA-like logging and recording control systems and hence there was very little specific in terms of timeline information available to the investigators. A Canadian Royal Commission spent two years looking into the incident it was a joint federal-provincial royal commission and produced a highly detailed 392-page-long report with many recommendations. Let's talk a little bit about the rescue problems. The water temperature was minus 0.7 degrees Celsius, that's 31 degrees Fahrenheit, and without suitable protective clothing covering the whole body, loss of dexterity occurs in less than two minutes, exhaustion or loss of consciousness in less than 15 minutes. Beyond 45 minutes is not survivable. When you're working in a part of the world where ocean temperatures are that low, you'd think there would have been better protective suits and equipment. So about the lifeboats now. There were two lifeboats, number one and two, on the ocean ranges that were built by Harding AS in Norway, each with a capacity of 50 people and both were self-writing, as in they'd return to an upright position if they were capsized, provided that all the people on board were seated and there was no significant water ingress into the boat when it capsized. Each Harding boat was fitted with an offload release mechanism. Offload mechanisms only release the lifeboat once the weight of the boat is being supported by the water and hence the boat is floating of its own accord. There were two more lifeboats on the Ocean Ranger. They were built by Watercraft America Incorporated of Edgewater, Florida. And these were also self-writing fiberglass lifeboats that could house 58 people and used an onload release mechanism, which means they could be released at any time. Interestingly, only one of the two watercraft models had been fitted ready for use on the Ocean Ranger. The other one was still waiting for installation and it was sitting on the deck. There were 10 20-person life rafts installed on the Ocean Ranger. However, none of them were used in the incident as they could only be used by throwing them overboard and then you entered the life raft via scramble nets at water level. The conditions didn't allow that to work. Lifeboat number two was the boat that encountered the Seaforth Highlander vessel and a crack was noted in its hull running fore and aft parallel to the keel that allowed water to ingress into the centre of the boat. 
The investigators couldn't definitively determine the cause of that split. However, it might have been incurred during the lowering of the lifeboat to water level in the storm conditions. Even with a moderate list of the platform to one side, the lowering path of the lifeboat might have impacted some of the protrusions on the support structure underneath the rig. It's also possible there was significant sway caused by the high winds, leading to an impact of the lifeboat with the rig structure leading to a crack. But either of these possibilities can't be known for certain as there were no witnesses to the lifeboat evacuation and the boats were heavily damaged in the storm following. Let's talk about the life preservers. 21 of the bodies recovered were wearing Billy Perg Model 200 life preservers, of which the majority were from the Lot 1A manufacturing run of that model. The remaining person was wearing a Billy Pug Model WVO 100 work vest. There were no protective survival suits on the Ocean Ranger, only life preservers and work vests. Lot 1A were given pre-approval by the Coast Guard and were tested for final approval in May 1976, where it was found that the vest had a tendency to slip off over the head of the wearer during a jump-in test. So in August 1976, the vest manufacturer was informed that the device fell short of life preserver performance requirements in that it had a lack of turning moment that it did not keep the wearer's head far enough out of the water. Some of the initially built vests had already been sold at that point, and that was based on their pre-approval status. The final design adjustments following this feedback led to future lots of production not exhibiting that issue. Final approval was given in February of 1977. Following the investigation, the manufacturer was informed and they instituted a voluntary recall of devices from lots 1 and 1A, which is a total of 172 unapproved devices on the 12th of October 1982. The Ocean Ranger supplies of these were marked with Coast Guard approval. However, these were predominantly the pre-approved vests that were sourced in early 1976. Let's talk about the port light. The locking ring from porthole number 4 had a pronounced lip of metal on the edge of the ring that was adjacent to the port light. Hence, it was most likely caused by the impact of a wave of a very short duration but a very high impact force. The port light glass itself was manufactured in Japan to Japanese industrial standard, that's JIS, F2410 of 1955. The standard was 1955, not the glass. By recovering both the damaged and an intact port light from the wreckage, the investigators found that it was 0.3 millimetres thinner than the as-built drawing said it would be, and the intact port light was found to be extensively pitted, which is common in that operating environment. Problem with pitting is that pitting of the glass reduces the strength of tempered glass. The ASE, that's the Aviation Safety Bureau Transport Canada, tested using air pressure to exert force on one side of the glass of the intact port light and found that it failed at 68 pounds per square inch. However, JISF 2410-1955 required that to be able to withstand 99 psi. Intentional pitting of one sample demonstrated that its braking strength dropped even further to only 54 psi. Therefore, the investigators concluded that the reduced thickness of the port light in conjunction with its surface pitting combined to reduce the strength of the Ocean Ranger's port light to 30% below the allowable minimum. So the port light glass didn't meet the specification, the standards, or the as-built drawings. 
That said, each port light also had a dead light fitted to it that was designed to be closed in rough weather conditions, and that would prevent any water from coming in in the event of a rogue wave. The deadlights were made from metal, with a far higher braking strength, and that wouldn't have been impacted had there been a rogue wave. Let's talk a little bit about the chain lockers now. The chain lockers were, quite obviously, empty when the rig was in position because all the chains and the wire rope were currently in use holding the rig in position. The chains were extracted from and returned to those lockers via two deck openings, one for the wire and one for the chain. The chain opening had an area of half a square metre, that's six square feet. The wire openings varied between two square metres to two and a half square metres, that's 22.4 square feet and 28.3 square feet. Now, interestingly, there were no covers provided for those openings in the deck. There was no drainage system in the chain lockers and there were no dewatering pumps installed in any of those chambers. Finally, though, there was no alarm system to indicate if flooding had occurred in those chain lockers. So flooding or down flooding is important. So what is that? The entry of water through any opening in the hull or superstructure of an undamaged vessel, such as an open door or portal, loose or open hatch, ventilator opening, etc. So when down flooding occurs, in that definition it goes on and states, down flooding can occur due to a ship's trim, if she heals or lists, or if she becomes totally or partially submerged, end quote. Because in English apparently all ships are female for some reason. I don't know. So you know the expression, batten the hatches, there's a storm coming, or something like that? Well, of course, it would help if the chain lockers had hatches that you could batten, uh, but they didn't. The American Bureau of Shipping had designated those openings in the chain lockers as the first point of down flooding, and it had been determined during design that the angle of down flooding for the Ocean Ranger at the 80-foot draft was a 27-degree trim to the bow, and that was based on still water conditions. It did not consider that heavy seas could easily cause down flooding at much smaller angles than 27 degrees. Another key point is the draft at the time of the incident. The draft of the rig, I mentioned it before, it's the depth of the pontoons, which is the keel in this case of this this boat, if you can call it a boat, below the waterline, which is effectively then the height of the rig and the deck above the waterline. So normally the rig would be operating at a draft of 24 metres, that's 80 feet. The investigators tested using a scale model in multiple configurations and environments following the incident and showed that a 93-foot draft and a bow trim in excess of 6 degrees led to very rapid down flooding. They also showed that down flooding was still possible in similar conditions experienced during the incident at only a 15 degree of bow trim. Now we need to talk about the ballast control system. So... As we previously mentioned, there were 24 ballast tanks in the pontoons, and controlling their levels were six pumps, with each tank interconnected via a series of pipes and control valves. The ballast control room was located in the third starboard column above tanks 10 to 13, at a height of 8.5 metres, or 28 feet, above the mean water level, at a draft of 24 metres, or 80 feet. Because it was situated in a support column, the room was circular and fitted with four portholes to allow the operator to observe supply vessel movement during the transfer of cargo supplies, but also to visually observe the draft marks indicated on the inside face of the four corner support columns. 
The furthest of these was on a column approximately 61 metres or 200 feet away, making reading those in particular impossible in bad weather, such as that was experienced during the incident. Each of the portholes was fitted with a deadlight, which is a hinged metal cover that can be closed when the portlight isn't in use or isn't required. During storm conditions particularly, even though even in normal conditions, a rogue wave is always a possibility, and industry practice is to keep them closed. However, there was no specific training or guidance for the crew to close them under normal operation, and it had become normal practice just to leave them open permanently. They were open during the storm leading up to the incident, and this allowed a significant amount of water to enter the control room when port light number four broke under pressure from a rogue wave. The control room was designated as a dry area, and as such, all the electrical equipment wasn't designed to be waterproof, and it wasn't even water-resistant. The level of the tanks was determined via two sets of king gauges. Each of these were positioned at the end of each pontoon tank, a set each for ballast, fuel oil, and drill water. Placing the sensors at the end of the tank rather than in the centre will give an excessively high or low reading when the trim isn't level. So just imagine a rectangular tank with liquid in it. Tip it down slightly on one end and all the water will run to that end. And the apparent water level measured from the top of the tank at the top end will show that it's very low. And if you measure it from the bottom end, it'll, the water level will appear to be very high. But in fact, the only true measurement is in the center, which is relatively constant no matter what the angle of the tank is. Now, to make things just a little bit more confusing, on the Ocean Ranger, the port and starboard level indicators were positioned on their respective opposite sides of the room physically, which really isn't intuitive. So the port was shown on the starboard side, the starboard was shown on the port side, because reasons? I don't know. The room had two sets of inclinometers that showed the rig's angle of trim and heel up to 15 degrees maximum in each axis. Each valve was pneumatically operated when opened. The solenoid would actuate the valve block and a limit switch indicating the closed position would turn off the lamp indicating that the valve was closed and then once the valve had arrived at open, could be up to 40 seconds later, the open limit switch would then indicate the valve was open. If an operator is paying attention, they can tell that the valve is stuck between those two states, as in open to closed or closed to open, so it's stuck in transit. But there was no alarm system to indicate that the valve had a travel fault after a set time delay. So if all power was lost, then all the valves were designed to fail closed, retaining the water in each tank and keeping it where it was. If air pressure was lost, then all the valves would also fail closed. Under loss of remote control, it was actually possible to manually operate the valves via a jack screw at the valve itself, and the pumps could be operated manually from the pump room. Having said that, if manual attempts were to be correctly coordinated, since the king gauges were only present in the ballast control room, anyone present in the pump room would need to use the public address system to coordinate their efforts. In the event air pressure is available, but there's no electrical supply, it's still possible to actuate the valves from the valve solenoid control block using a small round object the size of a small pencil to force the actuator as a form of a manual override. 
The electrician representing the owners during the construction of the Ocean Ranger had arranged for a box of brass rods to be stored behind a control panel in the ballast control room in case of emergencies on board the Ocean Ranger. Now what follows are two slightly different theories to explain the evidence that was found. The more likely scenario first. Shortly after midnight, when the ballast control panel was re-energised, it was likely that there was still water ingress into the valve actuators, and that caused erroneous operation. Valves moved when they shouldn't. Whilst there's no specific evidence to confirm that, the most plausible explanation is that the sea chest valve, which is P32, opened, and that allowed external seawater into the distribution manifold header. Now, if then the crossover valve, which was P20, was also opened, any of those downstream valves that then allowed water to flow into those tanks, the ballast tanks, that would have allowed seawater into any of the forward ballast tanks in the port pontoon, and that would lead to a rapid listing. And that was what was reported over the radio. Upon realising that a list had developed in the rig, the natural response for an operator would be to power the panel off again. But once there had been an additional, call it accidental, four or five degree trim by the bow, if you add four or five degrees of pitch and roll due to the, the horrible storm weather conditions, by the time it's 1am at that point, they were reporting a 10 degree list. And that's what they would have observed on board the rig. That was what they reported to shore. From that point, the operators couldn't trust the electrical system and so decided to manually override valves using 18 brass rods directly into the solenoids in the valve block in an attempt to force close the valves. The alternative explanation was that the operators had simply manually inserted 18 brass rods into the solenoids in the valve block as a preventative measure, again thinking that they would force close the valves. So whichever theory you choose to believe, the salvaged valve block from the wreckage had 18 brass rods inserted in it, in no logical pattern, not designed to direct water flow between tanks, but perfectly sequentially from the right side to the left side of the solenoid blocks. The problem is that these were normally closed, fail-safe, fail-closed valves. So if you force them, you're forcing them open, not closed. Hmm, not good. Forcing all of those valves open would have flooded the pontoon and worsened that list to the point at which the chain lockers would down-flood and the rig would capsize, which is what happened. The interesting question is why would they think that forcing the valves would close them? Before we go any further, I'd like to take a minute to talk about the network and how you can help us out. The Engineered Network launched in 2015 and has several shows that take varying levels of time, effort and research to prepare for, as well as to record, edit and release to you, our listeners. Over time, the ways people can support the network have evolved initially through sponsorship advertising, which we're trying to move away from, we're now moving to a listener-supported approach. Now, to that end, we've had a Patreon since 2015, and there are six support tiers, each with different benefits available to you. Basic supporters are for those that want to contribute something as a thank you for what we do here. It's our most popular support category. Named supporters and above get their name added to the Engineered Network homepage as a special thank you. Premium and above levels are where it gets interesting. As a premium supporter, you get access to higher quality encoded audio files of all of our current shows. They're ad-free and they're released before the public versions go live. 
And then we move into our producer levels, silver, gold, and platinum, all of which get a name mention in the episode audio itself and in the episode show notes. Gold and platinum producers are allowed to influence which topics the shows create, so you can have your own say in what we cover in our shows. Apple Podcasts now has the equivalent of our premium level in the Engineered Network channel subscription. All of the same content that exists for premium and above patrons, but via the convenience of Apple Podcasts. Finally, we also support streaming value with Podcasting 2.0 enhancements. These allow you, the listener, to stream Satoshis. That's Bitcoin Lightning if you're into all of that. And by using the right podcast client app, you can stream sats in real time as you listen and boost bonus value whenever you like. You're in complete control. So if you're a fan of any of our shows and you want to help out to ensure episodes continue to be made, now there's lots of options that you can choose from. And no matter how much, what level, or whatever way you like, just know that it is very much appreciated, and it makes all the difference. Thank you. During the investigation, Mr. Jennings was interviewed. He was a former ballast control operator who served for some five and a half years on the Ocean Ranger and had no knowledge of the existence of the brass rods, let alone what they could be used for. Mr. Himes, who was trained by Mr. Jennings, also had no knowledge of the brass rods. Mr. Porter, who became a ballast control operator two months before the loss of the Ocean Ranger, testified that Mr. Don Rathbun told him that if a valve malfunctioned, it could be operated from the ballast control room with the insertion of a manual control rod into the appropriate solenoid valve, and the box of rods was located underneath the mimic panel. Mr. Porter provided a notebook that he had kept from his training period where his notes confirmed that Mr. Rathbun's explanation was that when the rod was inserted, the valve would close. Mr. Porter was off swing when Mr. Rathbun was the senior ballast control operator on board at the time of the incident. It's important to note that the booklet of operating conditions for the Ocean Ranger had no detail of the manual rod procedure of any kind. It's not clear why Mr. Rathbun thought the valves worked that way. So what was his background and how did he become a senior ballast control operator? Donald Rathbun was a 31-year-old United States citizen that joined Otico in January of 1980. He had no previous experience in the drilling industry, either on land or offshore, and after two months he was promoted from a rostabout to ballast control operator. For the record, a rostabout is a term used in an oil rig for someone that carries out random jobs that don't require significant training. And in Australia, we call them rouseabouts, as in they rouse about the place just doing stuff randomly. His employment with Otico was entirely on board the Ocean Ranger. He did not hold any formal marine licenses and had not attended any formal Otico training programs in the ballast control area. But before we get too hung up on Don Rathbun's lack of experience, he didn't promote himself. So what were the Otico's training requirements for that role? The Otico training policy for industrial crew required 80 weeks, that's eight zero weeks of experience, starting from when a crew member was first recruited before they could begin training as a ballast control operator. And then after 24 weeks of ballast control training, they could then be placed in charge of the ballast control room. Three former ballast control operators gave evidence at the public hearings. Frank Jennings, Cliff Himes, and Bruce Porter. Mr. Jennings testified that he responded to a newspaper advertisement and was appointed as a ballast control operator without any drilling or marine experience 
and after only several days of orientation, he stood a normal 12-hour watch by himself in the ballast control room. Mr. Himes had 28 weeks, Mr. Porter had 32 weeks, Mr. Rathbun had 12 weeks, and Mr. Dyke had 40 weeks of rostabout experience before being appointed to the ballast control room. Not one had the minimum of 80 weeks required before being assigned to the ballast control room, and none of them came close to the 24 weeks of training before being allowed to run the room. Clearly then, this policy was not enforced on the Ocean Ranger, and training records were not kept because there were no examinations and no informal procedures to demonstrate competency. The training program that did exist was focused on understanding the mimic control panel and on making basic ballast and stability calculations. There was no focus on handling of fault conditions, erroneous operation, or recovering from instability. So what do we learn from all of this? The Commission noted a total of 66 recommendations. We're going to focus on one of the formal ones and a few others that weren't called out technically as recommendations but were still mentioned. Number 24. The life rafts required to be on drilling units shall be davit launched. Beyond this, there were multiple additional recommendations surrounding training of lifeboat crews and training drills based on onload and offload mechanisms for which there was little evidence found historically on Ocean Ranger. The style of life rafts on board required ocean entry, whereas Davit style launched life rafts launched the same way as the lifeboats do. These would have been more useful to extend further away from the deck and clear of obstacles without the need for crew to enter them via ocean water. Survival suits. The Ocean Ranger was not equipped with survival suits. Now, this wasn't an official recommendation in the report, although it was mentioned. The reason it wasn't a finding is because there were no regulations at that point in time that required them on MODUs operating in Canada. Having said that, eight months before the incident, on the 7th of July 1981, the Canada Oil and Gas Lands Administration, that's COGLA, had issued a telex to all offshore operators recommending that survival suits be installed on all MODUs and their support craft operating on the east coast of Canada and in the Arctic. Had survival suits been provided, it is highly likely that there would have been multiple survivors as opposed to none at all. Since the incident, Kogler has issued a formal directive that all drilling units must have sufficient survival suits for 200% of the crew on board rescue vessels and aircraft. Also, this wasn't a specific recommendation, but when they did get helicopters off the ground, finally, they weren't equipped with hoists and rescue baskets, nor were the pilots trained in marine rescue procedures. As a result, the helicopters added little to no value in the end and may as well not have been sent. The rescue vessels also had inadequate rescue equipment, and the design of the support vessels themselves made them more challenging for rescue missions. The Kogler regulations of that time required a suitable standby craft for each rig. However, there was no definition of what suitable actually meant. All three of the supply vessels in the Hibernia field at that time were designed for carrying heavy cargo, towing icebergs, and for handling the rig anchors. Their design included high, solid bulwarks, and they didn't have any access gates. Uh, For those unfamiliar, the bulwark is the side walls that rise above the deck level, where people like to lean over and look overboard and say, oh, there's water over there, or something like that. Adding gates in the bulwarks makes it easier, much easier, to lift items you're attempting to recover from the sea 
up and over the side and onto the deck, and it's common in boats designed for rescue operations, but not these. The boats also had a high freeboard, and the freeboard is the vertical measurement from the waterline to the lowest point on the highest continuous watertight deck level. When you're trying to keep your cargo away from ocean spray, a high freeboard makes sense. When you're trying to rescue objects from the water level, it doesn't. Cogler regulations also required each standby vessel to have sufficient capability and equipment to evacuate all personnel from the rig and to have first aid equipment available to treat people suffering from hypothermia. None of the three support vessels had special rescue equipment other than life rings and throw lines. They should have had a crane with a rescue basket or a net at the very least. Their crews also had not been trained in rescue operations nor in the treatment of hypothermia, though in this case, it was never required since they couldn't rescue anyone out of the water. Let's talk briefly about the aftermath. Since the wreck of the Ocean Ranger had its topmost point situated approximately 30 metres below the surface, the wreck posed a danger to shipping channels through the area and a decision was made to move it to deeper waters. In August 1983, the wreck of the Ocean Ranger was refloated and sunk in deeper waters by Wismula Salvage. The operation saw the Ocean Ranger towed upside down with only two pontoons breaking the surface during the journey to its final resting position in much deeper waters, away from shipping channels. In total, an out-of-court settlement for all of the families involved totaled 20 million Canadian dollars. You might argue that the weather conditions made rescuing people impossible, and even if they had the additional life-saving equipment with them, they still might not have saved anyone, and that's possible. Having said that, it's about increasing your chances of success. Better lifeboats and launching mechanisms, plus properly equipped rescue helicopters, plus properly equipped support vessels, and everyone wearing survival suits combined would have saved some lives from the Ocean Ranger. So many regulations worldwide now include these requirements today, along with training drills to reinforce the proper operation of of lifeboats and life rafts and evacuation techniques, these lessons have been carried forward and are far better practiced today. But I can't get past the deadlight and the operator's lack of training. People were put in that position based on their personal interest in being in the ballast control room rather than knowledge or training or understanding, which is frankly unconscionable. As an electrical engineer, I've worked with control valves for nearly 25 years, so it's obvious to me how they work. But if you're not trained, or you haven't used those, then it's easy to get it wrong, and they did get it wrong in a very, very big way. The Ocean Ranger was one of three platforms in the same storm conditions, and it was the largest of the three, and yet it sank. And so the thing is the deadlight. The definition of the deadlight is a strong shutter fitted over a porthole or other opening that can be closed in bad weather. That's the definition. You'd think that given the storm was one of the worst they'd encountered, that they would have closed the deadlights, but then the habit of leaving them open just in case you need to check the draft level, well, they never closed them. Had they fitted remote draft indicators and wired them back to the control room, they could have confirmed the draft reliably with the deadlights all closed and then this wouldn't have happened. 
but once again we come back to training. The semi-submersible platforms are an amazing design evolution for what they can do. They're an impressive sight to behold. But there's a lot crammed into a very small space, and that makes it a pressure cooker of many different systems that all need to function properly to keep everyone safe on board. In many ways, there's no system on board that isn't critical in some way, which means you need to take them all very seriously, including their maintenance and training on how to use them properly. In the case of the Ocean Ranger, there was a perception that the ballast control system was fail-safe and straightforward. So when it came to training the people running that system, they cut corners. So when it counted, in the most horrible of weather conditions imaginable, those choices led to the worst possible outcome. All they had to do was close the deadlights, and no one would have died. If you're enjoying Causality and want to support the show, you can by becoming a premium supporter. We're edging closer to our monthly goal to go advertising-free across the network, but we can only do that with your help. You can find details at engineered.network causality about how you can help this show to continue to be made. A big thank you to all of our patrons. A special thank you to our silver producers, Mitch Bilger, John Whitlow, Kevin Kosh, Oliver Steele, Leslie Law-Chan, Hapthor, Shane O'Neill, and Bill. And an extra special thank you to both of our gold producers, Chip Solzenberg, and our producer known only as R. Causality is heavily researched, and links to all materials used for the creation of this episode are contained in the show notes. You can find them in the text of the episode description of your podcast player or on our website. Causality is a podcasting 2.0 enhanced show, and with the right podcast player, you'll have episode physical locations, enhanced chapters, and real-time subtitles on selected episodes. There's details on how in the show notes. You can follow me on the Fediverse at chigi at engineered.space, on Twitter at John Chigi or one word, or the network at engineered underscore net. This was Causality. I'm John Chigi. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.